Let's stand and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To thee do we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in thy clemency hear and answer them. Amen. Saint Joseph, Saint John the Beloved, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So this evening, um, uh, there's two handouts, and I understand that uh, we ran out of one, but just uh, for future reference, um, uh, and a thanks to Mike Pakalik who sent this to me, um, it's a list of the seven capital sins and their daughters. Um, And uh, so if you want to see how each one breaks down and maybe locate your dominant defect somewhere on that list and see uh, where it comes from. Uh, it's, it's this sheet. And then on the other side is an experiment on my part. Uh, I began charting St. Bonaventure's description of the seven deadly sins and how they all proceed from pride. Um, but I clearly didn't understand him very well, so I just went off on my own. And... Um, <laughs> But on the left is pride, which is the root of all sins, and that is sort of refracted into uh, different vices by way of the passions of pleasure and sorrow, which St. Thomas says uh, are the most important of the passions and, and have a prominent place among the capital sins. Uh, and then I further sort of divide them into the interior, exterior, and physical life. And so the interior sins, the exterior sins, by which I mean things outside of us, and then the physical, uh, by which I mean those things that pertain to our body. And so when pride seeks an interior pleasure in an inordinate manner, that looks like vanity. When it seeks exterior goods in an inordinate manner, That's avarice or greed. When it seeks physical pleasure inordinately, it's gluttony and lust. And so, as regards sorrow, when pride gives us an inordinate sorrow about interiorly, that's envy. We're going to talk about that this evening. And as regards exterior things, this is a stretch, I realize, but there's Um, wrath, because that is something that we usually associate with going outside of ourselves and sort of taking out our anger on someone else. And uh, excessive or inordinate sorrow in the physical, um, and physical manifestation of that would be sloth. And then finally on the right-hand column, um, I've listed the, twice, the uh, evangelical councils which are a good way of combating the seven deadly sins, as it turns out. Uh, Obedience is well-suited to combating vanity, poverty, obviously combating greed, 
chastity to combat both gluttony and lust. Obedience again keeps us from envy, poverty, a certain poverty of spirit certainly, and poverty of, of wealth keep us from wrath, and chastity to keep us from sloth. Uh, so I put that before you, and, and maybe uh, next week we can go into it more when hopefully we'll have more copies. Now then, the next two sins for us to discuss are envy, invidia in the Latin, and wrath. And again, let's keep in mind two principles, at least, that I mentioned last week. First, that all of these capital vices uh, go together. They travel as a group. And second, um, each one is an inordinate uh, aspect of something good. It's a disordered good. So St. Gregory the Great says, as regards uh, envy in particular, the capital vices are so closely akin to one another that one springs from the other. For the first offspring of pride is vainglory. So pride is what? It's, it's the inordinate estimation of ourselves. And vainglory is when we want everybody to recognize uh, this inordinate estimation of ourselves. The first offspring, offspring of pride is vainglory, which by corrupting the mind it occupies begets envy. Since while it craves for the power of an empty name, it repines for fear, lest another should acquire that power. And so envy proceeds straight from vainglory. Vainglory we desire inordinately uh, empty glory. We want to receive glory that really is, we don't deserve or is not befitting. And then envy comes about and this is the most ridiculous of things, when we see others receiving perhaps even empty glory, praise that they don't deserve or praise that is not befitting them, and we resent it. More generally, envy is a resentment in the goods of others. It's a violation of the joy that should come from charity. If we truly love one another... We should rejoice when the other receives some good. Envy is when we are sad, when there's a sorrow that another person has received a good. Not just that we don't have it, but that that person over there has it. So vanity sets us up as the standard, and envy is when we run into the reality that we're not the standard. And envy refuses to acknowledge that reality and begins to eat away at our souls. Envy is when our vanity is unfulfilled or stolen. Another aspect of envy is that it sees life as competition, constantly looking at the other person, Engaging, what's he got that I ain't got? What does that person have? And why does he have it and I don't? And so it comes from the Latin invidia, invidere, which means to look askance. So imagine sort of the posture of, of looking out of the side of your eyes at another person and, and, and the expression of grr. 
that person over there has something that I don't have. One of the greatest poetic expressions of this is uh, Robert Browning's poem, A Soliloquy in a Spanish Cloister. And it begins with the word, so-called, grr. It's one monk envying another. And envy is the clerical sin. One monk envying another and saying in his heart, grr, there goes my heart's abhorrence. That's envy. And we should appreciate how constant this is. Envy, St. Augustine says, in the Book of Wisdom as well, more importantly, envy is the diabolical sin. Through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. So think of that, to- that next time you find yourself envying. Those who belong to his party experience it. What did the devil envy? And this is the subject of some uh, perhaps dispute or at least uh, a discussion. And some say he, in, he envied the fact that we would be given the grace of divine filiation in the Son, that God would take on our human nature. God did not become an angel. He became one of us, took on a human soul and a human body. And if you've read the screw tape letters, you know the devil hates the human body, thinks it's just this disgusting, foul thing. And so he would envy the fact that we've received the gift of God becoming one of us, taking on our likeness, our body, but not becoming an angel. Or perhaps it's that the devil envies the fact that we have the capacity to procreate. With all due respect to Baroque artists, there's no such thing as baby angels. Angels do not procreate, they do not reproduce. And so perhaps, some, as some theologians speculate, what the devil envied, what he resented us having, was the capacity to procreate. I think there's more than a little uh, truth in this theory. Because what we find as a constant throughout Scripture and in our own time, is that the devil assaults disproportionately women and children and women expecting children. And so we find in the book of Revelation, he is pursuing the woman who is giving birth. And we find in our own culture many assaults on procreation, whether it's contraception or abortion, These are things that are salting our capacity to procreate. And so in light of that theory, and this is not church doctrine, but uh, some theologians hold this, that, that it was envy of our capacity to procreate that prompted him to rebel, we should renew in our own minds uh, a, a greater appreciation for the human capacity to procreate and respect it accordingly. And then after Satan... Cain. Cain looks at Abel and says, Grr. Abel's sacrifice is accepted, mine's not. And so he rebels and he kills his own brother. 
Joseph and his brothers. His brothers envied him. He hadn't done anything wrong to them. With all due respect to Joseph, he didn't help himself at all. Okay? He didn't help the situation when he went to his brothers and told them about these dreams that he had about how they would serve him. I, I have two older brothers, and that's enough to know. That's not the kind of thing, even if you do have those dreams. But his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery out of envy because his father had a special affection for him. What do we find the apostles debating at the Last Supper? Which one of them is the greatest? Not a uh, very um, good moment in the history of the apostles. Our Lord is preparing to lay down his life. They are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. As I said before, this is the clerical sin, and the apostles show it to us first. The scribes and the Pharisees, they resented the fact that our Lord claimed what he claimed to be the only begotten Son of God. They resented that and persecuted him because of that. And I think we can see in that envy. Now, usually we use the term jealousy to describe this, this sin and this vice. Um, and I don't mean to change all colloquial expressions uh, in one evening here, but technically jealousy is the refusal to share something. Envy is the sorrow we feel when somebody, ha- somebody has a good that we do not have. So we hear that God is a jealous God. And we, well, how come he gets to be jealous uh, and we don't? Well, God is jealous because he refuses to share us. He does not want to share us with any other gods. He does not want us to worship anything or anyone else. But we never hear that God is envious. We don't have any good that makes him sorrowful. And then again in Scripture, we read, oh, just by the way, my reference to the scribes and Pharisees, this passage, just one verse from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, or chapter 27, refers to Pontius Pilate. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It was out of envy that the religious leaders did that. St. Paul, writing to the Galatians, he brings out, again, in this one verse, the connection of vanity and envy. Let us have no self-conceit. And what is self-conceit? But vanity. No provoking of one another. No envy of one another. And when we envy, we do sort of provoke one another. We'll see that as envy leads right into wrath. And so, uh, Father Harden, lengthy uh, definition there on your sheet. Sadness or discontent at the excellence, good fortune, or success of another person. It implies that one considers oneself somehow deprived by what one envies in another, or even that an injustice has been done. Now, there's an interesting thing about envy. By pride, we set ourselves up against God. We turn away from him. By vanity, we, we think we should deserve all of these accolades. By envy, we see that we haven't received these accolades. And we think some injustice has been done. 
Somehow, someone lost sight of the fact that the greatest mind the the church has ever seen is a mere parochial administrator in McLean, Virginia. (laughs) How did that that go unnoticed? So there's this, this, this sense of injustice. Envy sets us up in judgment over God, saying to him, you've gotten it wrong. You gave to that person something that you should have given to me. How could you have missed out on that? Consequently, it is not merely sadness that someone has some desirable talent or possession, nor certainly the ambition to equal or surpass another person, which can be laudable emulation. Now, this is a point that St. Thomas brings out in his uh, section on envy. There is a certain comparison that we are permitted, and this is reasonable. This is why, parents, you, you should hold forth examples of virtuous living before your children. And, and this is why we should praise people who do good, because we want to emulate those who do good, those who are virtuous. Envy is when that healthy admiration for someone goes off the rails. And instead of being admiration and a desire to imitate the virtues of that person, it becomes resentment that I am not yet where that person is, and that person has this virtue or this talent that I do not have. Father Hardin goes on. Um... Envy is a sin against charity, and I've touched on that, because in charity we should rejoice in another's good. Envy is sad about it. And the last sentence there, the most serious sin of envy is sadness at the supernatural gifts or graces that another has received from God, that is, to envy sanctity. Think of the devil's envy of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Her, he might say, that girl, and look at her, and, and then look at himself in all of his angelic glory, and thank her. She has this sanctity that I do not have. St. Thomas acknowledges that there is a legitimate sorrow that can come at another person's success. Keep in mind, St. Thomas, 13th century Italy. Um, Warring families, warring empires and nations. St. Thomas says that there is a legitimate sorrow when your enemy is successful. Because then you might be in trouble. You might be in danger. He says, as I've mentioned, there is a legitimate zeal for what others have. To, to imitate them, to imitate their virtues. There is a legitimate indignation at another person's success, as St. Thomas says, because he who happens to have that good is unworthy of it. So you see, envy does not ask us to suspend our good judgment and say that somebody who, who, who receives accolades always deserves them. There can be a reasonable indignation when we see somebody receive praise that they do not deserve. But that should not turn into resentment or hatred or sorrow, but simply an acknowledgement, perhaps, of a certain uh, unfittingness that somebody has received praise that they do not deserve. 
As I said, there is an element of competition throughout envy, and it sees life as competition, and there's no rest from it, none whatsoever, because there will constantly be the worry, the concern that somehow, somewhere, someone is receiving something that I am not. Someone is attaining a good that I am not. Someone is being blessed in a way that I am not. Those two over there becoming better friends, and I'm not in on it. They're enjoying their friendship, and, and, and I am not. Or that person has clothes that I do not. So you see how envy goes right into perhaps a little avarice. That person has something, some possession that I don't have. And so it feeds the other ones as they go along. And it sets the person up for just a life of complete insecurity, always measuring himself against others and finding his self-worth not in the loving gaze he receives from God, but instead finding his self-worth in the fact that he has something that others do not have, that no one matches up to him. All of life becomes competition. And consider what this looks like when it infiltrates a marriage. It's keeping score. Husband and wife, each one individually keeping a little secret scorecard of, of, of what he has done and what she has done and viewing their entire married life as competition. Well, I did this today, so that's it. Now it's that person's turn. There are two opposing virtues to this, charity and pity. Charity should be clear, as I mentioned, this is a vice that is contrary to the joy that charity should produce. So if we find ourselves suffering from envy, that means that there's a defect in our charity. And so we need to work on genuine love for the other person, selfless love for the other person that will enable us to rejoice when that other person is blessed and to rejoice when that other person is blessed more than we are. Envy is not just sorrow that we don't have something. That's reasonable. Envy is sorrow that we don't have something and that the other person does. And so we need to work first on charity. And what's interesting is St. Thomas says pity is the other virtue that opposes envy. Because pity is the sorrow at another person's suffering. Envy is sorrow when another person receives good. Pity is sorrow when another person receives something evil, receives some, is suffering some deprivation. And that counters envy. It's the proper instinct. Because if we don't have pity and we have envy instead, what do we do when someone suffers? We turn aside and we grin. And we say, that's more like it. Okay, now that guy is not as well off as I am. I'm a little further ahead now. And so we need to cultivate a genuine pity for, for others who are suffering. Now, in purgatory, how does Dante describe this? 
Well, first, actually, I would like to, just one, one line from uh, Paradiso, and it, and it brings out the difference between us sinners and the saints. Because envy, as I said, is a matter of competition, not wanting another person to receive something good. Heaven does not permit that. Heaven is not just union with God, it's union with one another, and a perfect union that will not permit any envy. When we speak of the communion of the saints, it doesn't mean when the saints receive communion. The communion of the saints is the union of all those who have been sanctified. And so, Dante is approaching two souls in heaven, and they look and they see him coming, and they say, Look, here is one to make our friendships grow. Here is one to make our friendships grow. Envy says, uh oh, here's another competitor. My friends might be taken away from me. The saints say, Look, here is one to make our friendships grow. Here's another one with whom we can share our friendship. But we're not in heaven yet, so let's talk about purgatory. <laughs> First, what is the punishment that the souls on the circle of envy suffer? This one, perhaps more than any, might indicate that, that Dante probably you know, ate right before he went to bed or had some like, really weird dreams at night, because it's a very, very odd description, but also very accurate. The souls on the, in the ring of purgatory, or the ring of envy, are described as follows. They are seated in pairs, back to back. So they're sitting on the ground, leaning their backs, their backs against one another. And they are leaning their heads all the way back and resting each soul resting its head on the shoulder of the person against whom he is leaning. And they are weeping. So they're supporting one another by leaning on, on each other back to back, and they are literally weeping on one another's shoulders. And their eyes are sewn, are shown, are sewn shut with wire. Okay, why these things especially the last. Well, they are seated back to back, leaning on one another for support as, because they would not support one another in this world. That's the very sin that they need to make up for. By envy, they didn't support one another. They were in competition. They were clawing at each other, provoking one another, as St. Paul says to the Galatians. And so in purgatory, they have to learn how to just lean on each other, support one another. In life, they provoked and attacked one another through envy. Now they have to support one another. Next, they weep on one another's shoulders. Why? Well, because Dante knows the virtue that opposes envy is pity. And what a great expression of pity to allow a person to cry on your shoulder. 
and to be received in that way, too. So they support one another. They show one another pity. And their eyes are sewn, are, are sewn shut. Why? Because they abused their sight. Invidia. Invidere. To look askance at the other. Remember how I described envy, kind of looking out of the side of your eye and gauging the other person, sizing him up, seeing how he stacks up to you. Instead of using our eyes to really greet the other person, to behold the other person as God would have us, envy makes us look askance at the person, to judge the person, see how they stack up against us. And so they need to learn how to use their eyes. And until they do, they'll be sewn shut. And in this, in, uh, in this ring or circle of purgatory, um, Dante himself is moved with pity, as well he should be. The p- pity characterizes this entire, his entire journey through this section. I don't believe so hard and stern a man now walks the earth whose heart would not be pierced with fellow suffering for what I saw then. For when I'd gotten near enough to know exactly what they did and how they stood, my eyes were wrung by all the weight of woe. He is moved with pity for them. And don't we hear this many times about our Lord? He is moved with pity. The original Greek is a very forceful word. He's compassionated, is a literal translation. He's moved with pity. His insides are sort of disturbed as he is moved with this pity for us. And what does our Lord show on the cross but pity for us? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Instead of lashing out, instead of judging us, he receives this condemnation, and he humbles himself. The liberating beatitude in Dante's Purgatorio is, blessed are the merciful. Envy refuses to show mercy, refuses to have pity. In order to be delivered from that, we need to learn how to be merciful. So Dante hears that song, blessed are the merciful, and he is sprung from the ring of envy to go up to the next one higher, to the ring of wrath. And that is where we turn as well. Notice how Cain's envy turned to anger, and he lashed out at his brother Abel. Envy is more interior. Wrath is external. Wrath strikes out. Now, we do need to make an important distinction because not all anger is bad. All envy is bad, but not all anger is bad. So let's distinguish anger and wrath because there is such a thing as righteous anger. Uh, In the uh, Mass today, it's our Lord throwing the money changers out of the temple. Not politely asking them to leave, 
not inviting them to exit, but turning over their tables, making a whip of cords, and driving them out. He was angry. There was a fury there uh, that was a righteous anger. And so our Lord himself shows us that not all anger is sinful. There is a kind of anger that is compatible with virtue and compatible with charity. In fact, if we love, we will at times be angry. In marriage prep, it always makes me chuckle when the, the couple say, oh yeah, Father, as long as we love each other, you know, there's going to be no problems. No. Uh, love will inspire that anger, but please God, love will also keep it in the proper measure. And so in Scripture, in the Psalms already, it says, be angry, but, but sin not. Uh, indicating that anger and sin, um, that there can be anger without sin. Our Lord called, I'm sorry, uh, going to Ephesians 4, St. Paul picks up on what the psalmist says. Be angry. It's a command in the original Greek. It's a command. Be angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Great way of expressing uh, what happens when our anger turns to wrath, the sun has gone down on it. And we'll see that yeah, Dante got it, as always. So there is a kind of anger that is understandable. Anger is a passion of the human soul. And so it is, in a sense, inevitable. In fact, there's something wrong with the man who is incapable of anger. There are many things in our society, in our culture, that should make us angry. Increasingly. <laughs> but our anger must be without sin. St. Thomas makes the point again and again and again that our passions desire to be subject to reason. Our Lord's anger in the temple was subject to reason, he didn't lose control. So, let's distinguish anger and wrath. Wrath as the vice. And it is this that our Lord is referring to in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to, men, to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. And those of us from big families get very nervous here. Okay. <laughs> everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother because this is how anger is, is expressed. Anger is, is, goes out of us. Shall be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. So, our Lord is speaking not of that uh, passion that he himself exhibited, but rather he is speaking of the vice of wrath. And Father Hardin describes it as a sinful tendency it is the inordinate desire be the singular there, to remove obstacles or difficulties that stand in our way, on the beltway. 
okay? <laughs> Going across the 14th Street Bridge, okay? There is wrath in motion <laughs> on four wheels, okay? Obstacles or difficulties that stand in our way. We should strive to overcome obstacles and difficulties, but wrath is when we unreasonably, inordinately attack those things, and more likely than not, the persons that we associate with our difficulties. And then he goes on, anger can be sinless and even virtuous. As when Moses was angry with the rebellious Israelites and Jesus was angry with the money changers in the temple. What makes anger sinful, what makes it wrath, is either the cause of the anger or its intensity or duration. So, what is the cause of my anger? Here's a good examination of conscience. I know I've been angry. Was I angry about something that is reasonable to be angry about? Or did I fly off the handle about spilled milk at the dinner table, about someone going one mile below the speed limit or only one mile above it? Or am I angry because of the injustice to the unborn, the injustice to marriage? Am I angry because of the injustice to the poor? What am I angry about? So what is the reason for my anger? What makes anger sinful is either the cause of the anger, what is causing it? And if we reflect on that enough, we will realize that it's probably nothing external. It is probably nothing outside of us that is making us angry, but something inside of us, like vanity and envy, and most of all, pride. What makes us angry? <laughs> when people don't understand that the world revolves around us, and so we lash out at them. When they don't understand that we deserve the praise, then we grow angry and lash out at people. So what makes anger sinful is either the cause of the anger or its intensity. So presuming that it's something legitimate, that it's a legitimate cause of anger, how have we expressed that anger? Have we insulted people? Have we failed in charity? Have we failed in justice because of the anger? Those of us who work in the pro-life movement especially have to be aware of this because the devil will strike us right here because we should be angry about the injustice done to the unborn, but we cannot let the sun go down on our anger. And unfortunately, some in the pro-life movement have sort of allowed their anger to go off the rails, and that is, that is unfortunate. So just because the cause is good doesn't mean that it can be expressed any way whatsoever. That's just pride. To think, because I'm right, and because I'm angry about something that is reasonable to be angry about, therefore I can act however I want. That is pride. What makes anger sinful is either the cause of the anger or its intensity or its duration. Who are you holding a grudge against? 
This is where anger really is turned in on ourselves. And so it does lash out, but it also eats us up. Think of the expression that we use. We are harboring a grudge. Well, to give harbor is usually something that you only do to friendly people. Let your allies come and drop anchor in your harbor. You're giving them harbor. You usually don't allow your enemies to come and drop anchor in your harbor. But when we bear a grudge against someone, when our anger has an unreasonable duration, then we are harboring an enemy right in our soul. And he's dropped anchor, and he's really happy about it because he's got us. Lent is the time to identify the grudges that we are holding and let go of them. Send them out of the harbor. Get rid of them. It's an unreasonable anger if it's an unreasonable duration. It goes from anger to wrath when the duration is way too much. You know, families that are still fighting about what happened 20 years ago. St. Gregory the Great points out the danger of anger. We must beware lest when we use anger as an instrument of virtue, it overrule the mind and go before it as its mistress instead of following in reason's train, ever ready as its handmaid to obey. Notice, reason is in control. Anger must be subject to it, and as long as it is, it's good. Zealous anger troubles the eye of reason. So beware, those of you who work for justice, especially in the political realm. Zealous anger troubles the eye of reason. We know that anger, if we don't keep it in its place, can blind us and can blind us to justice. Think of what happens in war. When soldiers have been attacked and they respond disproportionately because their legitimate anger in perhaps being ambushed or betrayed, their legitimate anger runs ahead of reason and injustices are committed. Zealous anger troubles the, eyes of, the eye of reason whereas sinful anger blinds it. Now, what's fascinating in St. Thomas's treatment of this is that he lists not just an opposing virtue, which I'll get to, but an opposing vice. And it all speaks again to the point that there is such a thing as legitimate anger. And the opposing vice he takes from a work of the early church, it's called unreasonable Patience. And we've all seen people who we think are being unreasonably patient. We're pulling our hair out, and they're sitting there very calmly. He who is not angry where he has cause to be sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but even the good to do wrong. Unreasonable patience. Patience. 
letting things go too long. Parents, it's when you ignore wrongdoing of your five-year-old again and again and again. That's an unreasonable patience. It should have been corrected somewhere in the first 30 times or so. Okay. And what that is leading you up to is on the 99th time the child does it, you blow up. And the child looks at you and says, 99, 98 times, it was okay. And the 99th, it wasn't. Okay, so unreasonable patience is when we let things go too long when we really could calmly correct them uh, at an earlier point. Instead of letting them go so long, we blow up. So that's the opposing vice. The opposing virtue, meekness. The day of recollection yesterday for engaged and married men, and Father Cruz gave a wonderful reflection on meekness and how our Lord embodies that. Uh, Meekness, it's kind of a Jesse Jackson sort of phrase, if you will. Meekness is not weakness, okay? Um, uh, He didn't actually say that, but it kind of sounds like a line from one of his speeches. Um, Meekness moderates anger according to reason. Meekness is not one of those virtues that we say, yeah, I really want that one. We, we want courage. We want, we want charity. We want hope. We want faith. Meekness, no, that's for the other people. Okay. Uh, but meekness is the virtue we must ask for and strive to cultivate in order to moderate our anger according to right reason. Our Lord says, learn from me for I am meek and humble of heart. This does not mean that he's a doormat, as he established fairly well in the temple. It does not mean that he's weak. It means that his anger is expressed exactly when it should be and exactly how it should be. That is is meekness. Meekness sounds like such a sort of a wimpy virtue, but it it demands tremendous strength because anger is so powerful, because anger is pursuing a good. It is outraged over the violation or perceived violation of a good. And so we have to strive for that meekness that our Lord himself shows. And how does Dante describe this? Well, exactly as you would expect Exactly as you would expect. Well, first, when he gets to the circle of wrath, he himself, before departing it, he has visions of meekness, examples of meekness. How about this one? Um, He has this vision. In the ravishment of ecstasy, there came to me the vision of a temple crowded with learned men. And I could see a lady at the doorway in the mild pose of a gentle mother saying, Oh, why have you treated us this way, my child? See how we've worried as we've searched for you, your father and I. Our lady is an example of meekness 
when our Lord stays behind in Jerusalem in the temple. And then also the example of St. Stephen in his martyrdom, which of course is just a reflection of our Lord and his martyrdom. Stephen is stoned to death, and as he dies, he imitates our Lord. Do not hold this sin against them. There again is that meekness. We find this in all of the martyrs. Search the records of martyrdom. You will not find a martyr who is lashing out at his persecutors. You won't find it. More often than not, they are either praying for those who are executing them, or they're encouraging their fellow Christians. Our diocesan patron, St. Thomas More, what does he say? I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And even before that, he says, I, I do no harm, I, I wish no harm, I mean no harm. There's just a peacefulness, a meekness, and even humor as he is going up for his execution. And so what do the souls in the circle of wrath, what do they have to endure? Well, what does wrath do? What effect does it have on us? And Dante captures it. We walked on in the evening, held our gaze as far ahead of us as eyes can go, looking into the low and gleaming rays, when, see, a mist was gathering bit by bit along our path, a thick smoke, black as night, nor was there any shelter free of it. This swept away the pure air and our sight. What does wrath do? It blinds us. The souls in the ring of wrath, they're walking along in this thick fog. They cannot see a thing because their wrath has blinded them, blinded them to the good. Next week, uh, I will discuss uh, sloth and avarice, sloth and greed, um, and uh, show how these proceed um, just, again, from these, uh, from these sins that we've already discussed. Before we depart the church, let us stand and uh, end with a prayer. Let's gaze upon our crucified Lord and pray to our Heavenly Father in the words our Savior gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.